right, today. So welcome to the Freemium Podcast. I'm Curtis Killen, president at KBD Insurance, and we got Mr. Fred Pye on the podcast today of 3IQ Corp. Did I get that right? 3IQ Digital Asset Management okay. is actually the parent company. Okay, and you guys are, um, I was on the website kind of looking around on it, so I always make um, I always make a little bit of a mistake. I never know the different differentiation fully between like crypto and then Bitcoin. So is it basically just, I'll let you explain exactly what it is that you guys do. But first, before we do that, really happy that you're on the podcast today. It's, we've been kind of going back and forth for a while um, to try and set something up and for you to come on. So thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the podcast today, Fred. Great. It's good to be here, Curtis. Good <laughs> to see you. So, uh, so yeah, talk to us about um, about the company, about your company. Yeah, well, 3AQ was founded kind of in 2012, and we were, uh, it really came out of uh, a company I was working with, uh, Landry Invest Management. Jean-Luc Landry was probably, you know, one of the best momentum players uh, in the world as a quantitative asset manager. And I've been using computers to run portfolios since my early days at Fidelity back in 1989. And that's when it used to take three days to run a simulation on a quantitative portfolio. And uh, by uh, by 2000s, everybody was 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 doing this. And I had a predecessor company that was all quantitative, but we were running a very simple portfolio called the Global uh, Multi Asset Momentum Portfolio, which is really simple for investment advisors. Out of the 16 asset classes that they look at for clients, why don't we just own the best seven all the time? And that portfolio has been running for 20 years and has a low volatility, great performance, and, and everything else. The biggest challenge, though, for hedge fund managers and money managers is finding that beautiful non-correlated asset class. So out of the 16, for all intents and purposes, with the exception of gold, everything was pretty much correlated. So um, I tripped over this thing called Bitcoin in kind of 2000, and I said, boy, I'd love to have this asset class in my portfolio. And, uh, but there really was no way to invest in Bitcoin in a regulated investment product for investment advisors or for investors. So I went on this, uh, this trek to try and create the first regulated Bitcoin fund in the world that investment advisors and clients could invest in just a regular portfolio. And uh, that was kind of a five-year battle with the regulators where finally we ended up at a public hearing um, in front of a judge and we won on all aspects. And in 1999, we were given the go-ahead to run the first regulated Bitcoin fund in the world. And I, this is all the way back in 1999? 90, sorry, that was, sorry. Now I'm going back to 2019. Okay. Sorry, it was, yeah, 99 was when we started the Momentum Portfolio. Okay. But it was, yeah, 2012 was when 3 Okay, because that's when I thought, okay, right. And Bitcoin itself was created in 2010, I think, or so, around there? 2008. 2008. It was yeah. after the financial crisis, right? It was during the financial during. crisis, where the entire concept was, is how do we, how does the next generation take money away from the irresponsibility of the banks and central governments? And how do we put that into a global payments uh, method? And that was the white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi Nakamoto. So to this day, as far as I know, no one still knows who this man or woman or whatever or computer, no one knows who this person is. Well, it's, it's kind of like shall we say, first of all, it's a pseudonym, obviously, and it probably wasn't one person. It was a couple of people. It's kind of like saying, 
Alexander Graham Bell, you know, when you know, when he made the first phone call, there had to be somebody on the other side of the yeah, phone of call. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, of course. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so doing the first sets of transactions and, and the inve- invention of uh, the blockchain, um, you know, was probably a group of people. Um, there is a monster amount of Bitcoin that's been put aside for the original founders, but they're all together, and none of that Bitcoin has ever moved because we believe one of the original founders has passed away. And so uh, that amount of Bitcoin will probably be locked forever. Got it. And then there is how much Bitcoin in the world? It's up to 21 million, I think, or something like that? Yeah, there'll never be more than 21 million, and we're over 20 million or 19 million in change right now. Okay. So here, we'll go back to the ETF. It's an ETF fund. I guess that's the the proper way of... We have a closed-end fund. We have an ETF, but we we manage all sorts of digital assets. And I think that when people try to understand what Bitcoin is, um, it's, you really have to look at the history of the internet. So the internet was founded <clears throat> you know, very early on with something called TCP IP, which is the transmission control protocol or the internet protocol, which allowed one computer to talk to another computer. And then came out the magic uh, uh, email, which was simple mail transfer protocol. So it was SMTP. And then there was. Uh, Are you HTT- a coder? No, I'm not a coder. You're just really but, smart. Uh, I learned their history. <laughs> <laughs> but then came Hypertext Transfer Protocol, which was the birth of the World Wide Web and the yeah. Internet Superhighway. We called it the Information Superhighway back in the day. And I was involved very early on in the early Internet, uh, internet movements. And then uh, Voice Over Internet Protocol came out. And then... Uh, text messaging protocols, and then the BitTorrent protocol. So if you follow my, my, my chain of thought here is the Internet is nothing but a collection of protocols. And if you could look at BitTorrent protocol, which is now live streaming, when these protocols are created on the Internet, they don't disappear. They're there forever. And in 2008, when the secure value transfer protocol was created, everybody goes, well, I don't know that protocol. Well, that protocol is also known as the Bitcoin blockchain, either Bitcoin or the blockchain. So now the latest protocol invented in 2008 allows you to transfer ownership, value, title, or money over the internet securely and instantaneously and virtually for free which is all it is is another internet protocol that's better than the ones that preceded it. And I think when people realize that, wow, now it's, an, you know, it's now a protocol, the difference is, is who made money on the internet? Well, it's Google, it's Amazon, it's Uber. Microsoft, it's, yeah, Microsoft. Yeah. it's everybody that uses a free protocol to build a business on top of it. The secure value transfer protocol or the blockchain, the people that are going to make money are the people that own the underlying technology that own that blockchain because to put a secure value transfer uh, transaction, you actually have to pay in the native token, the native blockchain token. So the more the Bitcoin blockchain gets used, the more you have to pay in Bitcoin. So when people say Bitcoin doesn't have a use, well, it does. You actually, if you want to do a secure value transfer, you have to pay in Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has clearly been the best investment ever in the history of the world in in the kind of like 15 year period it's been around. 
And people are completely in denial that it has anything. And, you know, I listen to guys like Warren Buffett, and as much as I love him, and he's been a, a mentor of mine for, for decades, you know, he doesn't understand that, you know, um, the Bitcoin protocol is, is a business. It's the most powerful, secure computer network in the world. How can that be worth zero? And how does it go away? The only way it stops is if all the electricity in the world stops and seizes all at the same time, and then we've probably got a much bigger problem than where your Bitcoin start. Interesting. And so right now, there's a lot of places that we can go with this, um, and I'm trying to concentrate very hard and like under because if 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 I go back, let's say two or three years, Bitcoin, I thought it was the same thing. I was like, this doesn't make any sense or any or crypto in general. I, I didn't believe in crypto, but I'm kind of coming around to the idea that maybe there is some actual value here. I mentioned to you before you got on the podcast today, um, I've listened to quite a few podcasts that Michael Saylor has gone on to. He's a brilliant mind. Have you ever met him in person? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we'll go into that a little later. I'll give you my 30 minutes with Michael Saylor. Yeah, because it's like uh, he's, you know, he's he's really interesting to listen to and all that kind of stuff. But so Bitcoin right now, is it, and I know they're kind of battling this out between the SEC and Binance and Coinbase. Would you call it a store of wealth? Would you call it a currency? Would you call it digital gold? Would you call it all of the above? Like what is, what is Bitcoin? And is there any value outside of the fact that it's just on a really secure and efficient computer network? Yeah. So let's take a step back and go back to what we were, we were talking about before. Um, every internet protocol that I mentioned before, whether it's email or voice over internet protocol, nobody uses the post office anymore. No. Nobody uses, you know, every, you know, uh, nobody pays a long distance phone bill. That, no. that was huge for us when we were growing up. Was, yeah. How do you keep your long distance phone bills down? So yeah. what, it, what, what the internet has done is it's displaced traditional businesses, whether it's brochures, printing, anything along those lines. So arguably the single largest technological advancement of our time is money going digital. And that has to happen on a secure value transfer protocol. So money is now going digital. So no matter how it works, it will be digital Canadian dollars, digital US dollars, digital every, everything else. And everybody says, oh, it's digital now because I use Interact. I, well, this completely displaces the banking system. So what these internet protocols does was get rid of the middleman, get rid of the, you know, shall we call it the stress or the, you know, the baggage on top of any kind of transaction. Anybody who's tried to move trans money around the world, it's absolutely absurd. It's expensive too. Yeah, it's expensive yeah. and it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you can transfer a billion dollars of Bitcoin from Canada to Japan in 10 minutes at a cost of 80 bucks, you know. So, you know, those kinds of developments, they don't disappear. No. So as, as people start to use it, and it is used right now as a peer-to-peer -peer payment system. My original speech is always as well, if you can move money around for free, like, you know, moving money from England to Saudi Arabia or Japan to South Africa or Israel to Hong Kong, why would you use the US dollar? And that was really what the birth of Bitcoin was, is people would take their fiat currencies, turn it into Bitcoin and move it around the Bitcoin network. Now, obviously the technology development, and again, remember Bitcoin's now 15 years old. Mm -hmm. In technology times, that's forever ago. Mm -hmm. 
So there are many other blockchains now and many other protocols that allow that to happen. Now, Bitcoin has continued to develop with Lightning Network and everything else to make sure it can handle the capacity and the movement of everything that happens. So Bitcoin is kind of like the granddaddy. So I remember one mistake I made back in 1983-84. We listed gold certificates on the Montreal Stock Exchange. And that was my first battle with the regulators. And the concept was, you know, we go to the Montreal Stock Exchange and my mentor, Howard Kelly at Guardian Trust, he goes, we should, you know, we've got people lined up our bank here to buy gold. You know, why don't we just list our certificates on the Montreal Stock Exchange so that investment advisors can buy gold in their client's account as, as, an, as an investment. So we go to the regulators and they say, well, hang on a second. Gold is volatile. It's, it's, uh, it's got non-traditional custodians, you know, it's used for criminal purposes. And there's, you know, why would we ever list gold? And uh, two years and a half- Gold back in the day was used for criminal purposes? Absolutely, it was, that's what you would do. People would go take US dollars, buy gold, and then move their gold around the world. That's why, that's, that was the original I didn't know money that. laundering. I didn't know that. No, that was the I original money laundering. And then obviously gold has proper controls all over it now, but, you know, uh, anyways, we fought that battle and won and listed gold on the Montreal Stock Exchange, gold, silver, and platinum on the Montreal Stock Exchange back in 1986. We were the first to do that as well? We were the first to do that. Damn. Nice, Fred. And, uh, oh, we have a few other firsts in there, but, uh, you know, fast forward 30 <laughs> years later. Well, fast forward <laughs> 30 years later, when I go to the Mon to Toronto Stock Exchange or the Ontario Securities Commission, I say, I'd like to list Bitcoin in the Toronto Stock Exchange. They go... Are you kidding? It's non-traditional custodians. It's volatile. It's speculative, and it's used for criminal purposes. Why would we ever list Bitcoin? And I looked at the team and I said, "We can win this." And everybody thought I was from Mars. They said, "There's no way they're going to allow this." Anyways, we went on on the battle and and won enlisted Bitcoin. But the point of the story back then was, is gold was really the first store of value. Yes. But then platinum came out. And I said to myself, I said, you know what? Platinum's a better store of value than gold because it's got more restricted supply. It's mined in fewer areas. It's got higher industrial demand because it's used in catalytic converters uh -huh. and everything else like this. And so platinum's gonna overtake gold as the store of wealth. And I was very bullish on platinum. And then I realized later on, as I said, you're not gonna displace the trillions of dollars of gold or hundreds of billions of dollars of gold that are already used as a store of wealth or as in the vaults of central banks. So that's the way I look at Bitcoin. Everybody says, well, you know, what's the next best blockchain? What's going to be that next digital store of wealth? Well, Bitcoin's already there. It's already cemented as the, you know, go-to store of value. Store of value came um, you know, kind of it was a byproduct. Like people didn't realize that because the limitation of Bitcoin is only going to be 21 million, 21 million Bitcoins, you know, there's more than 21 million millionaires in China alone. Mm -hmm. So for all of them to buy just one Bitcoin, you know, there, there goes your 21 million. So the reality is, is, is when you have, and, and again, we go back to economics 101, increasing demand with flat supply, the only outlet is price. price. Yeah. And as long as the movement of money going digital continues to increase, which it's going to continue to increase for the rest of my life, I'm absolutely convinced of that, 
you have to buy Bitcoin. Do you believe in other cryptos as well? Or are you a, a, only a Bitcoin believer? No. So what happened is there was this, uh, the second one that really came out that got really well known, which is obviously Canadian, developed by a bunch of friends of ours that we know, um, was Ethereum. Yeah. Now, what Ethereum... That's Canadian? That's Canadian, yeah. Listen, who's the, isn't the guy the, the face of Ethereum? He's Russian, though, I think. Are you Canadian he's or something? He's a Russian-Canadian. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's cool. Canadian. Yeah, okay. he's University of Toronto, I think. Did not know that. Went to, yeah, yeah, Vitalik Viterin. Cool. So Vit and uh, the rest of the, the team, there were a number of other guys that were worked around that um, understood what the limitations of Bitcoin were. And to, to make a change on Bitcoin, you have to, I believe the Bitcoin blockchain, you have to have like 90 or 95% consensus vote to make a change. Well, there's no way you're gonna get the 40 million potential players that are validators on Bitcoin to agree, 95% agree on anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those that are making a lot of money don't want any changes. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so they came up with a, a platform, platform called Ethereum and you would use Ether to create what we call smart contracts. So that's where your insurance, your real estate, your storage, everything else you can do on the Ethereum blockchain because it was built and designed to facilitate that. Now you can, there are plugins to be able to do that on the Bitcoin blockchain, but Ethereum again became the first smart platform transaction. There are 290,000 developers on the Ethereum blockchain right now, and that's more than people go. People don't go, don't graduate from the U.S. and go to Wall Street anymore. They graduate from the U.S. and they go work as Ethereum developers. And because I guess you're kind of working for yourself in a way, right? You are. Yeah. You are. So, um, Ethereum was an amazing second platform. But and are they? Sorry to interrupt you there, Fred. I just have a question. Are they? So are they building on top of the already existing Bitcoin? Uh, blockchain or is this completely separate from the Bitcoin blockchain? This is a whole new blockchain. It's a completely different network. Exactly. Okay. So it has its own validators. It has okay. now they've gone through a big change from uh, mining, which is what we called proof of work, yeah. to something now called proof of stake. So the people that already own Ethereum, yeah. um, they're the ones that validate the transactions and doing that val transaction validation, they're the ones that get the money. So. For example, my Bitcoin closed-end fund, um, you own Ethereum, so you get to participate in the price movement of, of, of Ethereum, but you're now gonna collect a five to 7% yield because you're getting paid um, by, by the Ether network to validate those, those incomes. So now you make 7% while you sit on the second fastest growing network in the world. So. so is there someone behind a computer that's basically, or one of the developers that's validating a transaction? Like how, do, how does it's that work? It's everybody that owns Ethereum validates the transactions, yeah. And it's human, I, I, this is just probably a stupid it's question all to It's you. all automated. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say, I was like, there can't just be like uh, someone yeah. sitting in a factory. Okay, that's good, okay. So it's all automated, interesting. Outside of Bitcoin and outside of Ethereum, because to me, Again, I am not a crypto expert. I'm trying to learn more and more about it. I have a good base, I'd say, but not, I don't know it like you, obviously. Outside of Bitcoin and outside of Ethereum, are all the other cryptos just a pile of shit? Or is it like, because I know out there, there is there are definitely some cryptocurrencies that, um, that well, to me at least, they're complete BS. Um, so outside of these two cryptocurrencies, would you say that they're legitimate as well? Or... Well, going back to 2014, I think I had a bunch of university students working in my basement. 
And the idea was to find, we already had Bitcoin, we already had Ether, and we were saying, okay, what's going to be the next best blockchain? And Francis Pouliot, uh, a Bitcoin OG from Montreal, a friend of mine, uh, he was one of our advisors. He says, well, it's going to be the next one. And I'm going, what do you mean? And he says, well, all of these coding is open source. Everybody knows how Ethereum was built. So whether you're going to be Avalanche, you know, Algorand, Cardano, Polkadot, Stellar, Solana, Tezos, whatever of the next ones that come out, each one of them are going to be cheaper, they're going to be faster, they're going to be more powerful, they're going to use less electricity, and on and on and on. So the race for the future is the blockchains determining their use case. So you're in the insurance business. So we all know that all insurance contracts can be blockchain-based transactions. We know every major insurance company in the world is looking at how can we reduce friction in their industry by using the blockchain. And you put an insurance contract on, on, on a blockchain, for example. You buy airplane insurance. If the airplane crashes, you automatically get paid out. <laughs> you know, based on the validation that that's it and it's done. There's there's very little, you know, interaction that has to go on. So there are big, big, you know, the biggest things in the world that are looking to remove friction. So what is that? Real estate. So yes, you can tokenize real estate. You don't actually have to own 100% of a house. You can own three-tenths of a percent of the house mm. and you get a share of the rent that comes from that house. So these are objectives of what tokenization is all about. Now, what is the blockchain that's going to focus on the best development for insurance? What's the blockchain that's going to focus on the best development for real estate? What's going to, and I'll give you another example, um, digital currencies, right? And we'll talk about, a bit about that later on. But I'm, I'm excited for that. Yeah. But yeah, we invented a digital Canadian currency five years ago uh, called QCAT. Um, and we sat down in a room, we had uh, uh, the development team and the marketing team of a big Canadian chartered bank, and we had the entire team of one of the world's largest asset managers all in a room. And we sat them in front of a big screen, this was five or six years ago. And uh, we said, okay, we've got a wallet here on the left-hand screen. That wallet belongs to XYZ Asset Manager and has $4 million of bonds in it. The, port the wallet on the other side is from the bank, and the bank has $4 million of cash in it. Now, let's do a trade from the bank to the asset manager. So I said, everybody take a blink, and everybody blinks. And the $4 million of bonds is in the other portfolio, and the $4 million of cash is in the other. And we said, well, let's take a look on the Ethereum blockchain. Let's take a look at Etherscan and see what did that transaction cost us? Oh, it cost us two tenths of a penny to move $4 million bond position in under two seconds. And typically speaking on a non-blockchain network that would cost how much and take how long? It, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to insinuate how much people, but it would cost a shit ton of money because really? the broker and the bank and everybody's going to take currency take conversion. They're yeah, going to have expenses, yeah, yeah. fees and everything. It'll, it costs in, in the thousands of dollars huh. to do that kind of a transaction. And then again, they have to get settled and netted out at the end of the day, all stock transactions and everything. We, we laugh when we go from 
T plus, you know, used to be T plus three, T plus two, T plus one. You know, now it's T plus two seconds, you know, to actually do a transactions. So exchanges and everything will be, will be a moot point because every transaction on the stock market will be done peer to peer on a blockchain and this will happen. So these are all the big pictures. This is, there's going to be a lot of resistance to that acceptance. But a it's perfect of, example of, is uh, the ahead, Canadian sorry. Chartered Banks, the investment advisors at Canadian Chartered Banks aren't allowed to put Bitcoin into their discretionary portfolios right now. Yet I can guarantee that each bank has a monster blockchain development group working at that bank. So how can you say you don't like Bitcoin or you don't like Ethereum when you're spending millions of dollars trying to develop programs and, and to be the first and being able to use this new technology to again remove the friction that's all uh, that's all bitcoin and the rest of uh, uh the blockchain does it removes friction in a traditional world are canadian banks trying to do that right now absolutely okay yeah, entire buildings for some of our chartered banks that are built just and, and again it's a tech development center for royal bank or td or scotia or bmo or rbc sorry that was royal bank but uh I don't want to forget National Bank and any of my other very good customers. All the, <laughs> <laughs> all the big guys, all the big guys. Um, so, again, there's a lot of places that, that we can go with this. So the fact that the banks are kind of doing all this, that they're building all these networks out, what, and again, I don't really understand that much, but for, so let's say CBDC, so central bank digital currencies, I kind of, do you want to talk about that yeah, right now? That, do you talk your about timing's perfect. You're, yeah, you're, you're, I say, yeah, central bank digital currencies. Yeah. So right now, from my understanding, and uh, I, you know, you'll, you'll be able to correct me, to my understanding, I don't think, uh, or what I've been, what I understand is that commercial banks aren't going to need to exist and basically all the transactions are going to take place through the central bank. So for example, the Bank of Canada, they'd be the ones to issue the currency and they'd be the ones, to, there's pros and cons to having CBDCs. I'm not a fan of CBDCs, but I think it is going to be inevitable that we're going to get to that point eventually. So what's like what, what's going on and there's a lot to unpack here. What's going on with the CBDCs right now? Yeah. Where do you think this is going so to go? So let's start. When a lot of people say when again, when I my biggest position, why I went in it is really simple. Money is going digital. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, if the central bank of Canada issues a digital Canadian dollar, which means Curtis's hundred dollar deposit at the central bank of Canada is now digital and it's in his phone and he's just moving it around peer to peer, at no cost you've completely displaced the banking system mm -hmm. in Canada. Yes. Now, there's nothing broken with a banking system in Canada, so why would you displace it? And let me explain why. Because your deposit at the Central Bank of Canada, or sorry, your deposit at XYZ Bank in Canada is then used to lend out yes. to mortgages, yes. to small businesses. Yep. It is what powers our nation. Mm -hmm. So why would you want to displace a system that's not broken? Now, within the banks, the reason the costs are so high to do banking is because of the friction of moving middlemen around all the time. And I think that that's where a CBDC in Canada makes absolutely no sense. Hmm. Now, a CBDC in a country that doesn't have a banking network or a banking network that's not trusted and or a banking network where they can seize your bank and seize your assets. Isn't that the majority of the world? 
like there's a lot of countries like let's take venezuela argentina there's like a, a lebanon i have a lebanese colleague that works here too and she was having to um you couldn't take money out of the bank and she has family that still lives in lebanon her her family could not go get the cash and the cash there was hyperinflation it was just a complete shit show but i feel like there's a lot of countries especially third world countries the banks aren't trusted because the currency isn't trusted it's basically useless currency so isn't that the case for like a lot of are the nations of the world anyways exactly hence bitcoin yeah so this is if, where i start if, to buy if, into if, the bitcoin if, if this pitch. family or if these people all had bitcoin they can access that they can send it to anybody anywhere in the world instantaneously securely for free they can they always have it they know that it's there it's on a monster ledger that's never been erroneous transaction has never been put on the bitcoin blockchain nobody's if you send it to the wrong address then you're screwed because yeah. you sent it to somebody else it's kind yeah. of like if i gave you a hundred dollars and you ran away i can't get that hundred dollars yeah. back yeah. but um the the reality is is that's more of an argument for bitcoin let me go back to stable coins and what it really means and in canada we have a specific carve out and this will make it really simple we went to the uh, our banking partners at the time, um, VersaBank, David Taylor, went to the Central Bank of Canada, and we created QCAD. And they said one thing, give me one good reason why we shouldn't just shut this down right now. And he says, well, remember when we were all hippies in the 70s and 80s backpacking around Europe? Every, every old man around the table, yeah, 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 I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> he, goes, uh, he says, well, what did we use as currency? Everybody goes, American Express yeah. Traveler's Checks. And he goes, exactly. And he says, American Express Traveler's Check is a paper representation of a deposit at a Canadian chartered bank and hence accepted everywhere in the world. He goes, they go, yeah. And he says, and you don't have any problem with that. And they go, no, absolutely not. There's a carve out in our laws for that. He says, well, QCAD is a digital representation of a deposit at a Canadian chartered bank. So you shouldn't have any problem with that, should you? And they all looked at each other and said, no, ah, probably shouldn't. And hence, QCAD is still alive and was born. Now, everybody else wants to stick their nose in and slow it down and, and do everything else like that. But for all intents and purposes, we should have billions of dollars of digital Canadian currencies running around called QCAD. And I can send you Canadian dollars from my phone, not going through Interact, not going through the bank, not paying anybody instantaneously, securely for free. And I can do foreign currency conversions from QCAD to USDC or something else at spot rates all the time instantaneously. I can put it into any other currency in the world and we can move that currency around instantaneously, securely, and virtually for free. When we talk about smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain, you know, if uh, this building's full of shipping companies, right? So they, they go get what's called a, um, you know, uh, when they do a shipping, they have to have a bill of lading, but they also have to have, uh, uh, they put the money in escrow and, you know, then it gets released and it takes a long time and it costs an absolute fortune to do all of that. Well, if that's a blockchain transaction and, and FedEx is by the way, the leader globally on this. So it is important. The minute that shipments arrive and is signed off, they're paid. And it's all done on the blockchain for nothing. Those FedEx are, does this. 
FedEx does this now. They've been running these. Uh, Are they the first like big multinational the very first thing to do it? They, yeah. And they must be saving on a lot of costs. Huge, huge. And it's just the beginning. Like every one of these freight forwarders, every one of these global trades should be done this way. So hmm. another, so CBDCs are very, very important. And understand, so, sorry, CBDCs, but stable coins are very, very important. It's going to be a very, very big part of the world. The problem when you say stable coin, sorry, Fred, to interrupt you. When you say stable coin, you're just referring to all the different digital currencies? Exactly. You're talking about US, uh, digital U.S. dollars. Okay, okay. Got it. So there's two ways digital U.S. dollars can be created. It can be created by the Federal Reserve. Yes. Or it can Which be created by third parties that use those deposits at banks. Yeah. Okay, that's the way the market should work here in Canada. Mm -hmm. Because the banks in the U.S. will not deal with crypto companies, digital asset companies, they can't do that. So Circle, which is one of the most amazing companies in the world that has USDC, their USDC does exactly what we do. If somebody buys USDC, they mint, they take that million dollars, they buy US treasuries, and they hold it and it's backed. If somebody, what we call redeem or burn it, then they get a part of that treasury bill. And that's backed one-to-one -one all the time by US dollars. So there's no reason why you can't have unlimited numbers. But it would go back to what we saw at the turn of the century, where J.P. Morgan will have their own J.P. Morgan U.S. dollar. Their Morgan Stanley will have their own. And anybody dealing with us is going to move J.P. Morgan dollars around. They're not going to move, which are tied to U.S. dollars. They're pegged U.S. dollars. They're stable coins. They are backed 100% by deposits at these banks. And that's going to happen. Okay, so people that are in denial of this space. Now, all of those transactions and all of the minting of those are done on the blockchain. Now, it could be on Ethereum, could be on uh, Stellar or Tezos, or it could be on, Bitcoin. you know, Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin, um, because Bitcoin's so independent, uh, it's tougher to get the developers to, to go in it. Uh, but the miners and the rest of the support network, like the Michael Saylors of the world, will be trying to put the biggest stable coins on the Bitcoin blockchain. What does MicroStrategy um, do exactly? Like I know Michael Saylor is obviously a Bitcoin bug. He truly believes in it. But when they, so I just see him, he's always buying these immense amounts of Bitcoin, putting them on his books. Like what's, what does MicroStrategy do? I don't fully understand like what the company does. Is it so, just investing? Is it? No, well, MicroStrategy is a technology-based firm. They do all kinds of technology development projects. MicroStrategy is, is moving towards, and one of his biggest targets is what we call micropayments, okay? Okay. So let's think for a second, how many loyalty programs do you have in your phone? 15, you know? A lot. Yeah, well, the best idea, yeah. idea and again, an idea that we put out there, Canadian Tire. Yeah. Okay, Canadian Tire dollars, Yeah. okay? Yeah. They can absolutely be digital and can be in your phone, yeah. which they are. Yeah. Your Canadian Tire points are my Canadian Tire card that's in here. Yeah. And I should be able to convert that into QCAD and pay off my mortgage. And the vision of Canadian Tire and Canadian Tire money 40 years ago was we want people to use Canadian Tire to be able to pay off their mortgages. And they can now pay off their mortgages with the loyalty points they get from Canadian Tire. Now, MicroStrategy is saying every one of these loyal loyalty programs are micropayments. So all these micropayments, whether it's songs, whether it's this or that, if it's 
you know, you can say it's eight tenths of a penny, but it'll all be institutions. It'll all be based on Bitcoin because Bitcoin can be broken down into, you know, you know, uh, hundreds of million. Mm -hmm. And and that's what a Satoshi is, by the way. A Satoshi is one one hundredth of a million digit. So if you every digit has a, a, a name, the one one hundredth million digit point zero 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 one is a Satoshi. So when people say, oh, yeah, it's how many Satoshis are stacking Satoshis, they're saving like hundreds of a million dollars of pennies, um, but of Bitcoin. So uh, I digress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> but having said that, so MicroStrategy believes everybody should be paid on all of this advice, on everything they do, on everything you buy. You should always be getting these things these you know loyalty rewards back and what we call micro payments that'll be on the bitcoin blockchain and everything else along those lines but michael always from very early on said i've got all this cash in my balance sheet why would i hold us dollar cash because i know that it devalues by the rate of inflation every year and michael's right um you know the value of the us dollars lost 99 percent of its purchasing yeah. power in the yeah. last hundred years yes right that's yeah. absolutely proven we've yeah. got charts in all our presentations yeah. inflation eats away at money right so he says well bitcoin's skyrocketing demand flat supply virtually flat supply i'd rather have that on my balance sheet than anything else so he invests the retained earnings of microstrategy into bitcoin but when his company, all, whenever it required capital, he would raise $200 million and buy $200 million of Bitcoin and stick it on his cap table. Well, you know, his cap table now has so many billions of dollars of Bitcoin, I think four or whatever the number is. You know, he, he's obviously done the right, you know, done the right thing. Um, and part of my 30 minutes with Michael Saylor was, you know, you know, Mike said to me, Fred, he said, uh, you know, um, you know, a bunch of people have done great things in Bitcoin, but people haven't done such great things. He mm -hmm. said, you've done a great thing by getting it done and, you know, getting your ETF and getting your closed end fund built. And, you know, I admire that. Um, but he says, you're going to notice one thing. I never tell people to buy a micro strategy. I never tell people to buy a, your ETF or or I just tell them to buy Bitcoin. Mm. There are different ways to buy Bitcoin. It's up to the average investor to figure out what's the best way for me to buy it for myself. But buy Bitcoin. Doesn't matter how you do it. It is that big and that powerful a game changer. And I think that that's where we've seen um, you know, the good things. And as I said, the big winners are the micro strategies, are the three IQs, are you know, the coin bases of the world. These are companies that have all done the right things the right way. All right, perfect pivot right here. If this system of payments, if this network is so fantastic, if it's so amazing, why are countries like China and what appears to be the United States of America as well, why are the politicians and the leadership in these countries banning cryptocurrencies? What, what do they not like about Bitcoin being around? That's a really good question, and I, if if I had the answer, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm flabbergasted. Especially when China banned Bitcoin, they didn't ban necessarily Bitcoin; they banned Bitcoin mining, okay. and that, that's simple because Bitcoin mining takes about four to five and a half percent of all global electricity now 
to mint Bitcoin, right? Just Bitcoin. Just Bitcoin, okay? Four and a half percent of the world's electricity is used on a daily basis to mine Bitcoin. Now, we're up Ooh. to, the good news is about 65% of it now is renewable energy, et cetera. Yeah. And that's all good, and we have to, as a, as a, as a planet, we have to do better to, to, to move that under greater numbers. But that's how powerful it is, and that's how powerful that network is. But power in China is free. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. so you had all these Chinese people, <laughs> people setting up Bitcoin so mining farms and just making Bitcoin left, okay. right, and, and center at, at no cost. Um, but then China also has currency controls, right? So yes. they didn't like Bitcoin because it's globally portable. So, yes, they've tried to put restrictions on it. Now, how come a democracy, you know, like a US. capitalist country like the U.S. that doesn't have currency controls or currency restrictions ban the movement of it? We're not creating more new U.S. dollars in stable coins, for example. All you're doing is increasing the velocity of money. Increasing the velocity of money increases wealth around the world, both in developed countries and non-underdeveloped countries. And, and, and it's such narrow-minded you know, views of, you know, you know, how to control this. We proved in court that we could do this, which is why we have our Bitcoin ETF. Okay, we've proved that we can do it. Now, Canada's tiny compared to the United States, but we've never been mispriced by a hundredth of a penny. We've never missed a trade, I've never missed a transaction, never done an illegal transaction, never bought an illegal Bitcoin. And there are ways with anti-money laundering to be able to track everything that comes in. And, um, you know, the U.S. has to get their head around it. And it just means a change of government and or a change of, of the securities regulators. I mean, they run Bitcoin futures on the CME, like Bitcoin futures versus, and of course, the, the big traders are hedging that with using Bitcoin on their OT, all AML KYC compliant money laun uh, anti-money laundering processes that can be tracked and everything along those lines. And that's the difference. U.S. dollar currency itself can't be tracked. Bitcoin can be tracked everywhere. Hmm. So, you know, only really dumb criminals would use Bitcoin because <laughs> you can see where it comes from and where yeah, it goes like, to. I, I was under the impression as well that when you use Bitcoin, they were anonymous transactions. And then people were obviously using Bitcoin to, uh, to finance crime and all that kind of stuff. And the regular, like there was a, I read in the news, there was a bunch of um, people that were basically going to jail because they would just go look at the, the Bitcoin transactions that were going on. And you could see clearly that it was, they were for illegal purposes. Um, well, I found that interesting. Well, you, you can track it, right? Now, you can track it to a wallet from a country that doesn't have any, you know, uh, seizure or, or, or laws. Um, so, Do you think one of the reasons, though, like my assumption is that the Chinese and the U.S. probably see crypto or the... Um, cryptocurrency network as a competition to their own currency. And right now, as you mentioned, currencies over the past 100 years, the US dollar has basically lost 99.9% .9 of its purchasing power. And like the example I always go back to that I heard, I forget where I heard it, but back in the day, I think it's like, I don't know, 1600s or 1700s, the British, so when the British pound was the reserve currency of the world, 
if they caught you trading in gold, they would kill you. So it's basically like, no, you need to use the British pound. So do you think that's maybe one of the reasons why these nations are saying, we don't want this cryptocurrency stuff around. We want you to be using our currency. Because if you don't use our currency, that's going to mess with the value of our currency. Is that one reason perhaps why that they don't like these cryptocurrencies being around? Yeah, again, the US dollar could be a cryptocurrency as a stable coin, right? So, so it doesn't create, the US government themselves are the ones that create the, you know, that are responsible for the devaluation of the, yeah, the US of dollars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yes, when people realize that, you know, Bitcoin is a store of wealth as gold would be a store of wealth, you know, uh, you know, then, then they realize that, like, you can't stop this train. You, you, you just can't stop it. The government can't tell people what to do all the time. That's not what we live for or live in. And by U.S. restricting any kind of <coughs> developments of uh, digital assets, is they're really taking a few steps back, and they're letting all the technology development to go somewhere else, right? Now, there are securities and exchange laws that have to be abided by, and we all agree to that. We do, all the players we deal with are all AML, KYC compliant. None of us want to be responsible for the drug trade or, you know, child kidnappings mm -hmm. or, you know, prostitution or whatever it is. We, we, we don't want to have anything to do with that. But we also don't like waiting four days for your money transfer to come from England over Nobody to Canada and, and, uh. and, and then costing, you know, what it costs. So the, you know, it's, it, it's inevitable. The cat's out of the bag. It's just going to get bigger and better. And um, yeah, I, I guess from the investment point of view, the way I look at it is hashtag get off zero. I can't believe the number of people that we talked to after we've even created now four years ago, a Bitcoin fund that you can put in your RSP that people don't have five, 10 percent of, of their assets into this asset space because when everything else goes to hell, you know, it comes out. Is Bitcoin a currency or is Bitcoin a security? Bitcoin is... And the reason I ask this, this is like the million dollar question right now going on between the SECs. The SEC, they're going after Coinbase, going after Binance. To my understanding, Binance is doing other stuff as well. Uh, Bitcoin for, is a commodity. Right? It's a commodity. It's okay. been deemed, again, it's been deemed by the CFTC as a commodity in the United States. Same okay. as that. Okay. But it's so much more. And that was one of our first... Uh, so the very first time I launched one of our funds in Canada... Um, you know, the OSC says, you know, you have to pull that fund. And I said, well, it's an exempt market fund. It's not a public fund. It's a fund for accredited investors. It's a hedge fund. We don't need to have that fund isn't under the purview of the OSC. And they said, no, the fund's not. But they look at me and they go, you are. And I go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, why do you think you're licensed to deal in digital assets or cryptocurrencies? And I said, well... You guys don't know if Bitcoin's a currency, a commodity, a security, but I'm licensed to trade commodities, currencies, and securities. So it's call it whatever you want. Yeah. I'm licensed to do that. So what the Ontario Securities Commission did in 2015, 14 or 15, is they put certain restrictions on 3IQ 
of how we had to report our, 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 our transactions, our movements, and everything else. So we be actually became the first digital asset licensed company in, in Canada. It's not necessarily a specific license, but we agreed to terms and conditions to be able to run this. Now, unfortunately, everybody else that's jumped in after doesn't have to have live up to terms and conditions, but that's another pet peeve of mine. Um, Having said that, in the U.S. and everywhere else in the world, those hedge funds didn't have to report to anybody. So all the U.S. hedge funds were coming into Canada. So all the Canadian pension funds were all investing in U.S. hedge funds and in U.S. products and everything else like that because there was no Canadian product available. Unfortunately, most of them got their, uh, got burned because they would buy, you know, things like GBTC from digital currency groups, Grayscale. And realizing that no that doesn't follow normal rules and laws that the rest of the world follows they just do their own thing and in in grayscale you know has upset so many people around the world with gbtc that people moved over and then said okay we're going to custody our own assets and we're going to put our assets on this new really fancy exchange called ftx well how'd that work out for you <laughs> you know the reality is, 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 is for these pension funds and these, they have to do their homework. And we, pa- we check all the check marks, yet people continue to go after the latest, you know, flashy, you know, flashy, shiny object. And, and on that front, you know, Bloomberg called me up and they said, okay, uh, Fed, uh, when did FTX fail 3IQ's due diligence? I said, they didn't even get to due diligence. It's <laughs> like, that bad. Yeah, it's that bad. Like, we only do due diligence on companies that have already passed the smell test, and, yeah. and, and they didn't even even start. Um, you know, and that collapse of, of, of... Did you ever meet SPF? Yeah. You met him, yeah? We've, we've crossed paths, shall we say, with most of the cast of characters in the digital asset world over yeah. the last 12 what, years. What was he like? Again, he's very reserved and is the same with his CZ over at Binance, who's a Montrealer, by the way, technically, yes or no, went to McGill, um, yeah. the owner of Binance, but he's the man with no country right now <laughs> because, yeah. uh, you know, he's got to be careful. And, and and again, there's we selected Coinbase and Gemini early on as, as, as our true custodians because we did the homework. You know, my first, you know, trip to San Francisco must have been 2012 or 13. And b- before you go on, Fred, sorry to interrupt you there. What exactly does Coinbase do? Coinbase is two things. Coinbase, number one, first and foremost, has the most powerful custody uh, processes in the world, in our view. So it's basically it's somewhere where you can keep your cryptocurrency. You keep your cryptocurrency. Now, they have a front end called Coinbase, which is an exchange, it's a wallet. So I can open up my Coinbase wallet on my phone. Um, I can go to my Coinbase exchange and trade my cryptos from their their API or their uh, UI user interface. But the bottom line is, is when my assets are held at Coinbase, as our assets for all our funds are held, we know that custody and cold storage at Coinbase in our view, is absolutely 100% bulletproof. 
everybody would say, what keeps you up at night? You know, what would keep me up at night if somebody hacked into 3IQ and stole all our Bitcoin? Well, that is absolutely impossible to do. It's just not going to happen. It's not... But what, what, why is there though? Okay, this is where I start to get confused because Bitcoin itself, like, why can't you just keep all the cryptocurrency on that particular blockchain? Like, why does there have to be another layer on top of the already existing blockchain? Because my understanding, like, the blockchain itself, it's used to kind of you can trade, but you can store it there as well. So why would you store it somewhere like Coinbase? Well, it's there, but it's there as a as a code, right? Okay. So it's digital. But how, how did you get for, because I think this is a, uh, an interesting question as well. I don't even remember what we were discussing earlier, but for dealing with the adversity, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of people looking at you going, you're crazy. This is so speculative. This is nothing. This is a bubble. And how did you kind of power through that? Did you just like, there must have been at least a little bit of doubt in the back of your mind going, hey, th this might not work. This is super high risk. You know what I mean? Yeah, again, I always go back down to the simple concept. Money in our lifetime is going digital without intermediation, period. It's going to happen. It has. It's like everything else. And everything else that's been invented on the internet doesn't disappear. Mm -hmm. You can't take something great and make it worse. Mm -hmm. Like there's no demand to make it worse. Mm -hmm. But we know, we now have the tools. The reason there's 200 some odd thousand developers on, on Ethereum is because there's so many applications. Like, let me give you a perfect example, okay? One of the companies I'm invested in, 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 in own, um, it's private, I'm not gonna use the name now, and I'm gonna take a few liberties in the story to emphasize my point. But Canada export, exports X million barrels of oil to the United States. The US imports X million barrels of oil from Canada. Well, those two numbers don't match. <laughs> yeah. So the Department of Homeland Security calls up Canada and say, hey, where are you sending all that extra oil? Well, they've got so many people that so many firms and government agencies trying to track the movement of just simple oil between Canada and the United States. So the Department of Homeland Security puts out an RFP and they say, isn't this a blockchain potential solution? And the answer is yes. So now a blockchain is a ledger. So now you have a powerful ledger that can't be screwed around with that can now track every export of every barrel of oil and every import of barrel of oil. And that's blockchain, or those transactions are also used to collect duties, taxes, everything else like this. And every one of those transactions that's going on the blockchain, they're paying in Ethereum, in Ether. So the Ether demand for Ether goes up because it's got to track all these oil barrel movements every day. Um, we take a piece of that going through on everything else. Well, it works well, so if it works for oil between Canada and the US, well, I guess it's gonna work for gas and maybe lumber, wheat, uh, steel. Everything Canada and the US trade together can now be tracked on a blockchain. And now, might as well throw Mexico in there because we've got, <laughs> it's, you know, you know, uh, so multi-trade I'm not, I don't disagree with you for the application of the crypto 
of the uh, cryptocurrency itself and the example you just gave is extremely clear and I get it and it makes sense. But then I started thinking in my mind, I'm a government and currency, when you control the currency, it is a form of control over the people. So we can just use a perfect example with the Canadian truckers. So in Ottawa, when they mm -hmm. seize their bank accounts, that is control over those particular people. You, you can't do anything, right? So if I'm a government and I'm looking at this, yes, the application of itself, the trade in oil between Canada and the US and vice versa, of course, with using ether, it's gonna be more simple. Um, it's gonna be easier to track, quicker to track and less expensive to for the transaction itself. But if I'm the US, I'm going, that's not good for my currency. And if it's not good for my currency, like this, I just keep coming back to the- but Think again the, I, about what happened, what happened in the US with the bank failures recently. Okay, uh, that, they, they, like Silvergate Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, yeah. and, and Signature Bank. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. They were, for all intents and purposes, hijacked or held hostage by a government. That, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, I guess, is different than Signature and, and Silvergate. But the, the, the reality is, I don't want to live in a country where the government can come in and seize my bank account, and I better have a shit ton of Bitcoin somewhere when they do. And that, what they did to the truckers, was wrong. The reason Michael's a mm. big, and, and even, I think we were at a speech with uh, RFK, um, Robert Kennedy in, in, in Miami, and he started off his entire speech on how can a government go in and seize the bank accounts of these people? If you're using that as a tactic to break up a peaceful protest, like WTF, right? This makes yeah. absolutely no sense. Yeah. And, and or what the U.S. did to Russia. They basically like and that this is correct me if I'm wrong. The BRICS countries and I read an article where they're trying to develop their own currency as well. But what on top of, you know, just less um, dependence on the SWIFT system. My understanding is that the U.S. went in, they seized all of Russia's U.S. dollars and basically just said, so all those billions of dollars in treasuries and cash, whatever you have, it's it's no good. You can't use it for anything. Is that that's what they did, right? Yeah, the Russians should have had Bitcoin instead because they couldn't. The Americans wouldn't have been able to seize their Bitcoin. Yes, it is a fiat again. Huh. Fiat currencies isn't the best solution. Yeah, I I, I it, agree it, with you it, there. I the, the only point I'm just trying to make is that I I don't see. I agree with everything you're saying. If someone had Bitcoin or someone had Ether and you can trade in that from country to country, nation to nation, I agree with everything you're saying. I'm just saying the point I'm trying to make is I don't think we'll transition that easily because the governments give up control, especially look at the US. They have the, the reserve currency of mm -hmm. the world. Why would they want to give that up? This is my theory on why I think they have an issue with cryptocurrencies. They're okay with digital currencies as long as they're in control of the supply of that currency. That's my opinion. You know what I mean? Does that make, does yeah, it, well, I explain <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah, except obviously Bitcoin, nobody can be in control of the supply of the Which Which the governments currency. don't like, you know what I mean? Exactly, but but stable coins again, CBDCs are different because they can print money using. Yes. But you know, uh, a perfect example: how much money would have been saved by the Canadian government if everybody had QCAT in their wallet, 
So when everybody during COVID was getting their $200 a month or $600 payments or restaurants would be paying, be massive. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the savings are in- incredible. The government's ability to seize bank accounts and everything have to be significantly stricter than than they are now on a global scale for terrorism or for war or whatever. That's Russia's problem to have those bank accounts and attack. But the SWIFT the SWIFT network is not a perfect network. The SWIFT network mm-hmm. gets hacked all the time, hmm. right? I didn't know that. Yeah, which is why it's so secure. And and again, you know, me trying to get fifteen hundred from the from a U.S. bank account to a Canadian bank account. Oh, where's the invoice? Who's it going to? You know, what's their bank account? Oh, the name doesn't match on the paper or the thing. It's, Maybe a, pain the the, it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. So the governments have to learn to embrace digital assets because the world is going to accept digital assets. So the U.S., you know, if they want to fall out of that leadership position, they should continue on the path that they're going on because all the technology businesses, everybody's leaving, right? Like, you know, we just just take a look at why would you, and, and let's talk about Coinbase a bit. You had, sure, had yeah. the notes. You yeah, that's, that's where we were, yeah, Coinbase. Brian Armstrong, um, who founded Coinbase with all the other guys that I've, I've known for a very long time, they're very wealthy. So here he is, he files a prospectus to take the company public to assist in financing the massive growth that's going on at Coinbase. Huge, huge IPO. And in when you take a couple, company public, the SEC goes in and looks at absolutely everything on in your in your business. Absolutely everything. What are they doing something wrong over here? Are they doing something wrong over there? Are they doing something wrong? So they get the green light from everybody, the investment bankers, the governments, the SEC, everybody, take your company public, boom, there you go. And then 16 months later, whatever the, the time is, they say, oh. We're suing you. We don't like what you're doing. We're gonna sue you yeah. for having legal. And he's going. Like what the hell? Like Brian's <laughs> going, like his, his podcasts. Yeah. And uh, his podcasts are, we're like, really? like. What, what are you talking about? Like, what are we doing that you didn't already know of? And how can you do that? You want us to abide by the rules. Tell us what the rules are. We will abide by the rules. We have no problem with that. Change the rules all you want. Just give us notice. You're changing the rules. And, and, and let's go with it. But instead, they're forcing Coinbase to leave the U.S. and go international and, and you know, continue to report properly under the U.S. regulations for your jurisdictions. But... They're not hiring another 15,000 people in the United States. They're going to hire them somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And so whatever countries are going to embrace this sorts of things, the Middle East, the UAE has their doors wide open. We've been on the NASDAQ Dubai for four years now, three years or, or whatever. Um, you know, the ADGM, which is the Abu Dhabi General Markets, um, you know, is an entire section of Abu Dhabi that are just buildings being built for digital asset companies. And so all these areas of the world that are experiencing massive growth, Japan, Japan is kind of one of these, um, they embrace an awful lot of one half, but then they're very scared on the other half. So they've got to work. But Hong Kong is just, again, outside of China, Hong Kong still has independence and, and, 
you know, is absolutely embracing what's going on, but it's the Singapore's, it's everywhere else in the world that saying, hey, we can do this. So the transition is happening one way or another. And so, the, okay, it makes sense what you're saying. And you're, from what I'm understanding, basically the governments that do not want to buy into this system, they're just going to be left behind. They are going to be left behind. And those politicians, you know, are going to lose their jobs. Mm. Um, in in that space, we, we'd love to get rid of both, you know, Trump and Biden. None of them make any sense for, <laughs> yeah. for where this world is going, what we're trying yeah. to accomplish. Like, none of them. Yeah. Gary Gensler at the SEC, this is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. You know, the movement in Congress. He just looks like a dweeb. Like he is. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's all, like, there are so many brilliant Republican and Democratic politicians that you see, that you hear them speak. They're all brilliant. I want to see those guys arguing and fighting. Yeah. The, the rest of these guys, forget about them. Yeah. Like, like, let's Not get someone in. who doesn't understand like how Facebook makes its money. You know it, what I mean? Like, <laughs> exactly. You know, there was someone in Congress who actually asked that question. Well, if it's free, how do you make your money? Yeah. And Zuckerberg's kind of like uh, advertising. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a uh, yeah. So, so the U.S. system isn't working for technology right now. And I, if anybody says, oh, the U.S. is the best place to go set up a technology company, everybody's going to go, yeah, not so much. So b- before we move on, okay, so the, the you gave a good explanation to kind of what's going on with Coinbase. What's this news that I just read about BlackRock, the fact that BlackRock are able to um, build their own Bitcoin ETF now, or they're in the process okay. of building their own Bitcoin no. ETF? Um, 18 companies and Kevin, my fact checker, is probably going to say, well, there were 17 or 19, but yeah, okay. I'm going to pick the number when I talk about certain freedoms. It's, okay. it's uh, I'm getting old and my mind doesn't remember things exactly, but let's say there's been 18 ETF filings in the United States. The first one was the Winklevoss brothers, which was mm-hmm. Gemini, mm-hmm. which Cameron and Tyler, you know, were always great leaders and... Uh, Talk about the phoenix out of the ashes from Facebook, you mm-hmm. know. Um, they've done an amazing job and, and done really good for our industry. Um, uh, but then then VanEck of the world, and for the record, VanEck owns 10% or just under 10% of 3IQ. Um, the coin shares, but ARK Invest, which are also very good friends of ours, Chris Berniski helped us write the, uh, um, the original prospectus, and Kathy Wood's a very dear friend and shareholders of 3IQ. All of these people and all these firms have filed these over the last five years, not not last month, over the last five years. Fidelity, who I used to work for, um, Abigail Johnson, Abby, has been, um, and this is a great story on your store of wealth thing. Uh, let me tell this story first. <laughs> Abby, uh, about five years ago, or four, five, six years ago, she gave everybody at Fidelity uh, bonuses in Bitcoin, gave everybody a Bitcoin wallet, gave them all Bitcoin, and then told the cafeteria, you know, uh, she says to the cafeteria, we want you to accept Bitcoin, you know, in, in our cafeteria here. So people would have their phone and use Bitcoin to buy, you know, to buy their, their food at lunchtime. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden, after the year, she goes, hmm. Nobody used Bitcoin to buy food in our cafeteria. <laughs> and she goes, they're hoarding it. <laughs> Those bums are hoarding. <laughs> you know, it. They're hoarding their Bitcoin. Bitcoin's not a currency. She goes, it's a store of wealth. Here she is managing 30,000 employees, but easily some of the most brilliant financial minds in the world. 
they all get Bitcoin. They go, I'm not going to spend this. Whereas me, I'm not that smart. In 2012, 13, I was trying to show everybody you can spend Bitcoin everywhere. I've got running shoes for a Bitcoin. I've got sweatshirts, T-shirts. I've got a, a cooking knife that I that I bought. I spent one Bitcoin. Google knows. Oh I'm my a, God. Google knows I'm a cook, and Google knows I had Bitcoin. Ah, oh, Japanese shave cooking knife. Only one Bitcoin. I go, yeah, I'll buy that. Bing, one Bitcoin. My wife goes, how's your $30,000 cooking knife, you stupid idiot? So so yeah. that's store of wealth. That's what's going on. We've got other ones. Like too many Bitcoins have I spent to try to prove everybody it was a currency. And again, I was wrong. It's not. It's a store of wealth. Everybody has a hashtag get off zero. You have to buy Bitcoin. Put a little bit in your RSP, your TFSA. Talk to your financial advisor. Financial advisor doesn't get it. Have them call me. That's what we do. Um, but you know, we really look at the entire concept of saying, you know, you have to be diversified on the in, on uh, on the investment side. This is just too good, uh, you know, uh, a tool. But we digressed. I went into the fidelity story because you asked me about. Indulgence. <laughs> <laughs> BlackRock, all the ETFs. BlackRock. Yeah. Okay. So now all of a sudden BlackRock comes and says, we're going to file an ETF. Yes. Okay. How much money do you think BlackRock spends on political... Influence? I won't say influencing because it's probably <laughs> not appropriate, but on donations. Lobbying. On donations? Uh, on donations A and year? lobbying. A year, director and direct. they have 10 trillion assets AUM, right? I think. Yeah. So I'm going to go with a small amount, 100 mil. The government doesn't say no to BlackRock, is my point. Got it. So BlackRock will win. Um, on the other hand, Grayscale. But are, are we, sorry, before you go on there, Fred, are we comparing apples with oranges? So when BlackRock is going to come up with a Bitcoin ETF, what Coinbase does is not that. Correct. No, but Coinbase will custody the BlackRock ETF. And I don't know if that's that's what I'm saying is that's what Coinbase would do. So when Got it. when 3IQ announces our filing. Got it. But why why can't that just stay on the like the TSX or the NASDAQ or the No, S&P? the ETF will stay on the T is it will be traded on the New York Stock Exchange or the TSX yeah. like us. But the so when if you go and buy a thousand dollars of my ETF at four o'clock, I'm buying $1,000 worth of Bitcoin and putting it into our vault at Coinbase. I understand. So you indirectly own Got it. $1,000 of coin without you having to fill out an application. Got it. Remember so why does, why does Michael Saylor then say all the time? So he was talking about, because you, you mentioned uh, Sam Bankman-Fried a little bit earlier at FTX. Why does he say, trust no one? And at least this is my understanding. The, the Bitcoin blockchain is safe enough. You shouldn't be putting your Bitcoin anywhere. You don't need to be putting your Bitcoin anywhere. You could just go get it yourself on the blockchain. At least this is my understanding. Yeah. Like, why, why you does have to store that? it? Some, you have to store it somewhere. Yeah. So, so like, Michael's not going to tell you where he stores his Bitcoin. Okay. And so I've had my phone. I've had okay. my phone SIM swap what three times in the last four years. Okay. Because people think I've got Bitcoin on my phone. They try to. SIM swap me to get access to all my accounts on my phone. Do they have to physically go into your phone, take your SIM out, and put it? That's what they try no, to do. No, what no, do they no. Do? They call. So you're a target. They 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 call shit phone company one, two, or three, <laughs> sorry, and say, 
oh, uh, I'm Fred Pye. This is my phone number, and I've got a new phone, so I need you to – I put my SIM card in the new phone. I need you to target – or I need you to – or I bought a new phone with a new SIM card. Here's my SIM card now. I need you to transfer this phone over to the other one, and they'll, they'll do it. Even though it specifically says on my account, I need two passports plus – Plus, like, I have a specific regiment that they cannot change my SIM unless I go into an office and show them these five documents. Okay? That's my protocol. Doesn't matter. Somebody in the call center and somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> well, said it. You, I get it. It's somebody good, yeah. in a call center yeah. gets convinced that, oh, this really is Red Pie. Even though it says in bright red letters all over your yeah, it's, account. It's, it's frustrating dealing with the, the tele. That, that's, a whole, that's a conversation for a different day. Yeah. But it's but anyways, frustrating yeah, to, so say, to say the least dealing with these guys sometimes. You have to store your Bitcoin somewhere. So okay. I would store it in a number of different ways. My own personal Bitcoin is not on my phone to all listeners. So yeah. don't try and sim swap me because it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. What I do have is is we have different things called, uh, there are hardware wallets that are called ledgers or a couple of the others that you can use. And you put in a vault at a, like all my Bitcoin will be stored on this USB key for all intents and purposes. But the USB key has its own password. So it. it doesn't come off, It's you can't hack into my computer and find that USB key. That USB key is in a safety deposit box and, uh, you know, um, we know the passwords and the codes and that would free up that. Or I keep a wallet over at Coinbase, which is held in what we call cold storage. So you have two types of storage of Bitcoin, cold storage and hot storage. Hot storage means that wherever you're storing that Bitcoin, it's attached to the Internet and can be hacked. Okay. Coinbase only keeps a certain amount of liquidity in their hot wallet because everything else is is air-gapped. So you can't hack Coinbase's cold storage because you can't get to it. It's not plugged in anywhere. It's not, you know, you have to go in with a, a gun and figure out where it is. Oh, well, by the way, the passwords are held at multiple locations around the world that nobody knows to be able to put these things together. So it's, so it's just- take, So storing your, your cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, you have to take- important. Okay. So I'm, when you hear of somebody losing their laptop, they were storing their Bitcoin on their laptop. They threw their laptop away. They had 200 Bitcoin on there, not realizing that Bitcoin at 20 cents me meant anything. Well, 200 Bitcoin at $30,000 means an awful lot. Mm -hmm. So which that's why they're going into the garbage dumps to try and find that laptop. Okay, you don't, you don't do that. The other bad thing is if you store it somewhere and forget your password, you're pretty much screwed. <laughs> so, like, and that's happened to people, right? Of course it happens to people, which is why you buy my ETF or buy my closed-end fund. It's in, it shows up in your CIBC discount brokerage account. And you're the one that handles storing the Bitcoin. We store the Bitcoin. We do it. all that for got you. It, got it gets it, audited got it, got by RCGT Grant Thornton. It's audited. It's got priced. It. It's everything. Never made a mistake. Mm. And if you put it in your TFSA or your RSP, it's tax-free in Canada. So when something goes from $2 to $20 to $200 to $2,000 to $20,000. Zero tax, no you capital You really gains. want to put that in a tax-free account because the problem now, if I sell one Bitcoin, I've got a $30,000 capital gain. Mm. I've got to declare it on just moving one. Mm. So it's a pain in the butt, right? So if I had the opportunity to put that in my TFSA, I would have done that. 
And when people say, oh, yeah, but it was 60,000. Well, it was 60,000 for about a week and a half. You know, it's been well, 30,000 for about 30,000. Is that 30? Okay. Is that, that USD or, or CAD? USD. US. USD. Okay. Yeah. So it's been between 20 and 30,000 for now a year and a half. So that's more of a proper price for it. So it seems like everybody you talk to, oh, yeah, I was that guy that bought it at 65,000. I'm down 50%. Well, you know what? How much did you buy at 15 when it when it corrected and came back? You should be break even or you should be in the profit now already. Oh, I didn't do that. Well, then where are you getting your advice from? You know, speak to your investment advisor. They know how to invest in multiple asset class, multiple currencies with multiple structures, with different ways. Talk to these guys uh, and say, hey, you know what? I'm allowed to invest in mutual funds and ETFs. I want to buy one of the three IQ products. And that's that's as simple as it gets. Now, it doesn't mean everybody should do it that way. You can have it a wallet. Yeah, you're not you can saying do it in your phone. Yeah, you're not saying put all your money into into a Bitcoin <laughs> ETF, but you're saying that you should allocate. What'd you say between five and t- or in your opinion yeah. again? Not financial advice. It's it's basically between. hashtag get off zero. Like okay. just start. If you start, you're not going to stop. Right. I have zero. I, I'm go- you're convincing me. But to, again, a thousand dollars a month for the next five years, you're going to yeah. sit back and you're going to look at it. And you're going to go, wow, Bitcoin's two hundred thirty. And 000. is it going up? Is 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 it going? Because again, it doesn't actually produce anything. So is it going up just because so in, uh, sorry, uh, this is a tongue twister. It's not actually going up. It's just maintaining its purchasing power because you said it's a store of wealth. And so in five or 10 years, the central banks are going to continue. The the currencies, the US dollar, Canadian dollar, all the Western, like the currencies are going to continue to devalue. So basically, Bitcoin is just a store of wealth. And so if the, let's say the, the Canadian dollar devalues another Fifty percent over the next ten years, which is entirely possible. Uh, I think that's actually probably going to happen. Bitcoin stays at X. It doesn't stay at X. It's up ten X if that happens. Your scenario on scenario yeah, one yeah, yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. This because remember, Bitcoin's got a fixed supply. We don't print any more Bitcoin, so you're going to have to buy from somebody else. Okay. Let me give you. You 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 talked about gold before. Let me. Yes, I used to be a gold bug. I'm not anymore, but I used to. Well, be. Well, gold is a store of value, yes. meaning it. So, how much new gold is produced every year? Well, I'll tell you, it's about four percent new gold yeah. is created every year from gold mining. Now, if gold's three thousand dollars an ounce, they're going to make a little bit more because it costs two thousand dollars an ounce to pull it out of the ground. But Bitcoin or gold ten years ago is what a thousand dollars, and Bitcoin was what a hundred. Yeah. Bitcoin's now 30,000 and gold's two. So what would be the better store of wealth <laughs> in that kind of an argument? Now, having said that, being a gold bug and a precious metal and a commodity uh, fan. Like Peter Schiff. What would you say to Peter Schiff? He, he, again, he just doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand the technology part of it. I think he's a stubborn son of a gun too. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I used to listen to his podcast all the time. I got sick and tired of listening to him because he doesn't, he doesn't listen to anyone else, and he's not a very good conversationalist because he just doesn't listen. He's just he likes the sound of his own voice. So I kind of got sick of listening to him a little bit. Yeah. So but what it, would you say to him? Well, no. Again, prior, so Bitcoin used to grow at eight percent per year. Okay. Yeah. I already told you gold grows at four percent per year. Supply, if supply. The supply of gold yeah, okay. grows at four yeah. percent per year. So let's let's look at it this way. Um, if you're looking for a store of wealth, Bitcoin's going at eight and gold's going at four, the supply is, 
then you have to look at the demand side of the curve, right? So Bitcoin had greater demand than gold. But if the demand is only one thing, which is a store of wealth, so let's assume, forget about jewelry, forget about, you know, technology. It's just the store of wealth. Bitcoin went from 8% per year down to 4% per year. And then it went from 4%. Now its growth is only 2% per year. Okay. So now that Bitcoin only grows at 2%, it's now twice as scarce of gold if the demand is the same for each one. And I can tell you the demand for Bitcoin is significantly greater at half the growth. So you should not sell any gold if you have it, but you should probably buy some Bitcoin at the same time. So I'm not going to get into that debate on what's the best store of wealth. What I do think is you need a store of wealth because I don't like what's going on. I don't think stocks are a store of wealth at this stage at these prices. I don't think, you know, we can go through a 25-year bear market in stocks. Mm -hmm. And the only way out of it is for them to keep printing money and have inflation go up 18%, which we I saw I think in the that's 70s. what's going to happen. I, I don't see a way out of this. Like, it's well. going to be basically, when you have... Um, when politicians have access to a printing press and they say that the central bank and, and the, the treasury, for example, are separate, that everyone knows that's not the case. So politicians indirectly have access to a printing press. What do you think they're going to do? They're just going to print more money. Yeah, yeah, sure. of course they're going to. And they can't, you can't win, especially today, you can't win an election promising to cut costs, promising, promising to cut uh, uh, like social programs. You, you will not win. You can't. It's impossible right now. So what are they going to do? They're going to continue to keep printing. I agree 100%. Okay, but 8% interest rates favors who? Retirement people or young young families? Retirement people. Absolutely, because yeah. the young families have to pay 8% for their mortgage. Yes. And, and you know, my parents are making 8% on for doing <laughs> their that, savings. Like getting a bond, yeah. But they're not yeah. doing anything for the next yeah. economy. They're not the consumers. They're not yes. everything. It's a strategy that's doomed for failure. Yes. And unfortunately, it will repeat itself. We grew course, up in I the agree. 70s, yeah, right? So, I agree. So, so those are the, you know, those are really some of the basics that are, you know, you know, tragic on, on, on what's going on in, 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 in current finances. You know, I think you need exposure. And again, people can just reach out to us, visit our website, reach out to us. We, yeah. Like, I, I think that for, and again, so it comes back to, I, I keep coming back to the same thing. I always like to kind of tie this stuff because currency, people think currency and politics have nothing to do with each other. They have everything to do with each other. And I think my opinion and my theory, one of the reasons why the gap between the rich and the poor, you know, over time, it's going to expand anyways. But something that's exacerbating the problem or making the problem go faster is the fact that. Uh, because they're devaluing the currency so quickly, people with assets basically get, they're fine. If the rich people stay rich, the poor people, they're poor anyways, but the people in the middle class who don't have as many assets, they basically fall further and further and further behind, which is what's happening today. Just the average person can't understand that. And they don't understand that when you're printing all this money, it is a tax. It's a tax. It's a hidden tax. And for what you're basically talking about, you're you know a cheerleader, not a cheerleader, but you're, you're giving good, great arguments, I should say, on why Bitcoin is going to fight against that. The, the I don't know for sure, but governments, central banks, uh, the West, they're going to continue to keep printing money. They're gonna keep devaluing the currency. They do not have a choice. There's too much debt in the system. They don't have a choice, they have to. Or they default on the debt. You think that's gonna happen? That's not gonna happen.
So if they're going to keep devaluing the currency, I get your argument what you're saying. Oh, if they do, you better have Bitcoin. Yeah, they, yeah I, I think, you know, as, as, as we wrap this up there, yeah. Curtis, I think the, you know, one of the, the big messages, you know, I'd like to put out there is, and a lot of people just talk about the price. Don't worry about the price. Mm. Just think of that big picture. Money's going digital, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, We've now got a store of wealth that's backed by the most sophisticated technology of our lifetime. My asset allocation to that has got to be greater than zero. Mm. Okay? When people talk about the price, I'll give you a three-second technical analysis. All-time, let's say all-time high, I'm just going to pick out one number, $60,000. It ran from three to 60. So, yes, a 50% retracement, normal in the stock markets, normal in everything, back down to 30,000. Then you have the cluster of... uh, of collapses of FTX, Celsius, uh, all of those those companies and the lending and everybody over leveraged, Bitcoin falls to 15. It's now back up to 30. So it's up 100% in the last year, right? We know Bitcoin will hit another all-time high. And when it passes through 60,000, a pretty good target would be somewhere around 120 on a normal movement on any technical analysis from any of these people that follow it. So I'm just saying it's not too expensive at 30. If it is, you buy some now, and if it falls to 15, good for you. Buy buy some in it. And again, dollar cost averaging is probably one of the smartest strategies. And that's what Michael Saylor does, right? Him Mm -hmm. issuing stock and MicroStrategy is literally dollar cost averaging into a bigger Bitcoin position. Brilliant, brilliant man, brilliant strategy. And there are a group of advisors that are out there. And the push should be for these investment advisors to push their firms to say, hey, I need some protection somewhere in my book that helps me get through what could be, you know, an inflationary spiral. I think that is an excellent place to end the podcast. Fred, thank you so much for coming on today. Freeman Podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much. Thanks, Curtis.